Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. In this episode, we're sharing a keynote talk and panel discussion titled, Complementary or in Conflict, Community Organizing and Collective Impact, that featured a talk by Marshall Gantz, who serves as Senior Lecturer in Leadership, Organizing and Civil Society at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Following the keynote, Marshall Gantz is joined on stage for a panel discussion on community organizing and collective impact. Joining him for the talk is Melody Barnes of the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions, Shakima Fulmer Townsend of the Philadelphia Youth Network, Marjorie Parker of Jobs First New York City, and Mark Philpart of PolicyLink. Introducing Marshall Gans is Monique Miles of the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. This talk was held on May 24, 2017 at the 2017 Collective Impact Convening in Boston. I am honored to introduce our keynote speaker. As we consider the national moment that our country is in, and we collectively navigate complex questions such as how to solve multi-generational challenges like poverty, inequality, threats to social, racial, and economic justice, we know that there are many ways to respond to this question. In fact, as I look around this room, I see many people who are working daily and arduously on these core issues. And as we do this work, there are a few things we know are critical to our long-term success, including how we sustain hope and faith for the long-term arc of this work. We also know that it is important to design a theory of action that creates a footpath, a roadmap to the outcomes we seek and the changes that we are aiming for. And finally, we know that in order to figure this all out, we need a way, we need a structure to do so. The life work of our keynote speaker, Marshall Gans, who has been called the maestro of organizing, is about bringing these pieces together in the fight for justice. As a pioneer of grassroots organizing over the past five decades, his work offers a blueprint as we consider the national moment our country is in and collectively answer questions, some of which have come up already in the convening of our Opportunity Youth Incentive Fund Network, including who are we as a country and how will our communities respond right now in real time to this moment? Marshall's research, his practice, and his lived experiences reminds us that we have the power in the narrative. It is in the narrative, the stories, the stories that we share that drive the movement and get us to the resolutions that we all seek. The life work of Marshall Gans is a story of working with people, working with communities, and working with movements to answer some of the most important questions that define our times and shape our history. 
beginning with his work with the Summer Mississippi Summer Project in 1964 and continuing with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Marshu was called into organizing at an early age. In 1965, he joined Cesar Chavez in his efforts to successfully farm workers in California. Let's give it up for that. And over the next 16 years, he worked with United Farm Workers and gained experience in union, political, and community organizing. For Marshall, this work wasn't about charity or helping. It was about justice and about working with people in a way that is respectful and enhanced their agency as well as his own. Marshall went on to become the director of organizing and was elected to a national executive, the National Executive Board on which he served for eight years. During the 1980s, he worked with grassroots organizing and developed new organizing programs and designed innovative voter mobilization strategies for local, state, and national electoral campaigns. He went on to become the architect behind President Obama's first campaign, which organized students and volunteers. He also founded an organization called the Leading Change Network, which brings together global a global community of organizers, educators, and researchers, all organizing for democracy. Marshall Gans is widely published and in 2009, he won the Michael J. Harrington Book Award for his book titled, Why David Sometimes Wins, Leadership, Organization, and Strategy in the California Farm Worker Movement. He's a senior lecturer in public policy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, where he teaches, researches, and writes on leadership, organization strategy, and social movements, civic associations, and politics. Before officially calling Marsha to the stage, I want to first share that following his address, we are going to hear from Melody Barnes and some local community organizers who will respond to his address and share their own work and solutions for responding to the current moment that our country is in. But before Melody comes up, please first join me in welcoming Marshall to the stage. Uh, good morning. Come on, you're going to have to do better than that. What is it, 8? Eight, eight, it's almost 8.15. It needs to be a very good morning, so let's try again. Good morning. Good morning. All right, that's much better. Thank you. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, reflect with you today about the role of organizing in addressing critical challenges we face as a community, as a nation, and as a democracy. Modest objectives should take about five minutes. But I do want to say that there is something very particular about this audience. Walter Brueggemann, a Protestant theologian, wrote a book called The Prophetic Imagination, in which he said that transformational vision occurs at the intersection of what he calls criticality, a clear view of the world's pain and hurt, coupled with hope, a sense of the world's promise and possibility. One without the other leads either to despair or irrelevance, but together they, can, they create the energy for transformational change. Young people come of age with a critical eye on the world they find and almost of necessity hopeful hearts. 
So it was so for my generation, and I hope it is so for your generation. And so I look forward to our dialogue this morning, our conversation this morning about how to make that happen. And this is an extraordinary time. Uh, the late Tom Hayden once said, change is slow except when it's fast. <laughs> We're in a fast moment right now, in case you haven't noticed. A moment in which chickens come home to roost, uh, in which we're confronted with truths that we've denied for some time. A moment in which small differences can produce enormous, enormous change, and a moment in which the choices we make really matter. It's also a moment in which our democratic institutions may be more at risk than at any time since the 1930s. How do we get there? I'd argue there's three principal proximate causes, galloping inequality and fragmentation in terms of class, race, gender, the hollowing out of the capacity of democratic government to do what it needs to do, and the atrophy of non-elite civic political organization, including unions, that rendered uh, many, of, many sectors of our country, especially those hardest hit, relatively voiceless. And although we can attribute these realities to globalization, digitalization, and financialization, that's good, I got those right. Um, although th certainly they presented major challenges, their consequences, especially in this country, go back to failures in public policy that not only did not respond, but made things worse by privileging reactions of privatizing, marketizing, and donorizing. That's a new word I just invented. <laughs> that goes back to the 1970s and has turned people into customers or clients rather than citizens engaged with one another in the challenging but critical practice of democratic politics. <laughs> How we respond to this challenge matters. Addressing the symptoms in domains of health, education, youth, with disciplined, focused, and accountable community collaboration is a very, very good thing. But unless at the same time we're strengthening the voice of the voiceless, rethinking, rebuilding the capacity for democratic governance, and begin to have a structural impact on the inequality, we have to ask ourselves whether we're trying to compensate for a failing system rather than changing the system. You know the metaphor of the miner's canary. The miners would take a canary down into the mines because if there was poison, the weak respiratory system of the canary would react first and keel over so the miners could get out of the mine. We have to ask ourselves whether we are not only finding ways to save the canary, but doing what we need to do to get the poison out of the mines. In our country, given its problematic electoral structures, a reality, a reality of which people have become acutely aware recently, uh, that task has often fallen to social movements, um, at the heart of which is the practice of organizing. These movements of moral reform modeled as they were on the Great Awakenings of the early 19th century, fought for change on behalf of temperance, abolition, 
women's suffrage, populist agrarian reform, labor reform, progressivism, civil rights, environmentalism, gender equity. And organizing is indeed focused on problem solving, but on doing so in ways that can develop the leadership to empower the powerless to address the structural problems of political, economic, racial, and gender inequality, thus opening pathways to change. So what I hope we can explore today will be how to solve the urgent problems we try to solve in a way that strengthens the democracy rather than weakening it. And asking whether at the most micro level of analysis and action, are we strengthening the individual and collective agency of those most in need of change or diminishing it? This is why organizers strive to put questions of leadership, constituency, and power at the center of their approach. And this isn't something new. Um, it wasn't even invented in Chicago by Saul Alinsky. But in the West, the organizing tradition has at least three <coughs> core, at least three core roots. There's the story of the people uh, who launched a journey from slavery to freedom, to freedom, as told in the book of Exodus, a faith root, a faith foundation to this work of social change. And then there was the day the Greeks decided they didn't need kings, that they could govern themselves, <clears throat> the beginning of a civic tradition. And um, then there were popular means like the Irish tenant farmers of a British landlord uh, who withheld their crops until he made the improvements to which he was committed, a man who gave his name to that tactic, Captain Boycott. Yes, that's where the boycott comes from. And I'm grateful for the fact that my introduction to this tradition came in the Mississippi Summer Project in 1964, which is really where my education about race, power, and politics in America began. And the farm workers in California, which helped me learn the difference between charity and justice. Charity asks, what's wrong? How can I help? Justice asks, why is it happening? How can I change it? And that's when people get uncomfortable because it is often the case that people over here have less because these people have more. And when we try to change that, there's resistance and there's struggle and there's conflict. And that's a positive midwife of change. It is how change actually works. So let's talk about organizing. First, um, let me just find some water. Is there some water? Yeah, to give a good sermon, you need, yeah. <laughs> First thing about organizing is that it can be understood as a form of leadership um, that's rooted in three questions posed by a first century Jerusalem scholar, uh, Rabbi Hillel. When asked about how do I think about what to do in the world, he responded with three questions to ask yourself. The first question, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? Now that's not meant to be <coughs> a selfish question. Uh, here we go. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> that's not meant to be a selfish question, but rather a self-regarding question. If you presume to lead, to take responsibility for others and engage with others, you better be clear about what, what's in it for you. What, what are your values? What are your resources? What do you expect from it? 
But secondly, he says, ask yourself, if I am for myself alone, what am I? Because to be a who and not a what is to recognize that our capacity to realize our objectives is inextricably wrapped up with the capacity of others, that we exist in relationship with others in this world. And thirdly, he says, ask yourself, if not now, when? Uh, which isn't advice to jump into moving traffic, I don't think. It's a caution against what Jane Adams called the snare of preparation. Uh, just another year of strategic planning, and finally we'll have the perfect plan, and then we'll implement it, and the world will totally conform to our expectations. Is that how it works? The reality is, the reality, yeah, the reality, the reality is that, that getting, that in order to learn to do well what we try to do, we have to often begin to do it. In other words, understanding flows from action. It doesn't precede it. And that takes courage because it means leaping into a dimension of the unknown, which is the future, in, a, in order to be able to learn what it takes to create the change that we hope to change. So for me, leadership is about the interaction of these three, self, other, and action. And the fact that they're questions and not answers is also important because it, it makes clear what the domain of leadership actually is. Um, I don't know if you've had the experience of uh, uh, being an uh, organization, everything's going great, and people say, um, where's the leadership so we can thank them? When do people say, who's in charge here? When do they say, where's the leadership? When? Yeah, we know problems, contradictions, difficulties. And, and it means coming to terms with the fact that the domain of leadership is not one of certainty, but uncertainty. It, it is not about establishing control that we never really can, but a how to pursue purpose in the face of uncertainty. And that's challenging and problematic. It's a challenge to the hands. Do, can I, do I have the skills I need to deal with these new challenges? It's a challenge to the head. Can I use my resources in new ways to deal with these challenges? A strategic challenge. And then, where do I find the hope? Where do I find the courage? How do I inspire that in others? And that's a challenge to the heart. So it's really a head, hands, heart proposition when we're thinking about leadership. And the definition that I've come to use is that it's about accepting responsibility because there is a choice for enabling others to achieve shared purpose. So this is not leader as, as uh, diva or sun, right? And you know, the sun that illuminates, you get close, you get light or maybe burned or whatever happens when you get too close. It's not that idea. It's leadership as a form of social interaction in the pursuit of common purpose under conditions of uncertainty. So that makes leadership less of a practice, I mean less of a, of a position than a practice, less about trying to assert control than developing the capacity to respond to uncertainty. Now, organizing is a, and, I, and I do want to say this, it's thinking of leadership as a practice means being clear about the difference between a formal position of leadership, positions of authority, and the exercise of leadership, which are, aren't they two different things? You know people in formal positions of authority who are not such great leaders? That ever happen? Doesn't just happen at Harvard. Okay, well that's, yeah. On the other hand, we meet people in neighborhoods and at kitchen tables and in workplaces who are exercising leadership in the sense that I'm using the term all the time. 
And so it's understanding as a practice of which many of us are capable. Now, organizing is a particular form of leadership that asks three more questions. The first question, not what is my issue, but who are my people? Who is the community with whom I am engaging in a leadership contract? With whom am I working? To whom am I accountable? And second, what change do they need rooted in their lived experience and understanding? And what would change look like in terms of their needs? And finally, how can I work with them to enable them to use their resources to build the power that they need to achieve that change? So organizing is not about providing services to grateful clients. It's not about marketing products to customers. It's about turning communities into constituencies. A constituency comes from the Latin constare, which means to stand together. Client, interestingly, comes from the word inclinare, which means to lean upon, to depend upon. Organizing is not about creating dependency. It's about enabling power. And this tradition is an old tradition. So how does it actually work? Well, one way to think about it is in terms of five practices that can enable a constituency to turn its resources into the power it needs to achieve the change it wants. In the Montgomery bus boycott, for example, that launched the modern civil rights movement, people discovered that if they used a resource they all had, any idea what was the resource they all had in the Montgomery bus boycott that was so critical? Any idea? Yeah, they all had feet. And, and if they used their feet to walk to work, instead of getting on the bus, on the segregated bus and riding to work, then their de individual dependency on the bus company uh, their and the, 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 the power of the bus company over them as individuals could be turned into their power over the bus company when acting collectively. And that dynamic of how resources can, individual resources can be turned into collective power, that's at the heart of what organizing is all about. Because it isn't change coming from out there, it's change coming from right here. And that means changing ourselves even as we change the world around us. Now, one way to think about this organizing framework is at one end, relationships, at the other end, action, and in the middle, story, strategy, and structure as ways to turn the relationships into the power for action. And let me explain what I mean. First, relationships. Organizing is grounded in the building of relationships rooted in shared values based on commitments to work together. Now, it's the process of association with each other, not simply the aggregation of individual resources that can make a whole greater than the sum of its parts. In other words, aggregating a whole lot of mouse clicks at the same time is not the same thing as thousands of people forming relationships with each other so that they can act collectively together. This is, this is an important distinction. It goes to the distinction between mobilizing and organizing. Wahel Ghanim, who was one of the leaders of the Tahrir Square movement, 
re in a recent interview, talked about the fact that they mobilized very effectively, turning people out, especially relying on social media to do that. But they didn't organize. They didn't build the horizontal relationships. They didn't build the structures. They didn't develop the leadership. So that when they were successful in getting rid of Mubarak, who was it that was able to pick up the pieces and walk away with them? Not them. It was the people with the organization, which in that case was the Muslim Brothers. So it's very important to understand the difference between individual aggregation and building relationships horizontally and building collective capacity. And although relationships are always based on exchange, to some extent, uh, my resources, your interest, your interest, my resources, it takes commitment to turn an exchange into a relationship rooted in shared values that give them a future, enabling learning, growth, and development, endowing, endowing transactions with the possibility for transformation. Contracts, when you negotiate them, that's done. Relationships, when you form them, they're only beginning because they open out into growth, learning, and new understanding. The core skill in organizing is the one-on-one -on -one meeting, the house meeting, and these practices that, in fact, you know, it's interesting, so many of the practices in organizing are things we do all the time anyway. How, how many people here have ever had a relationship? Let me see. <laughs> Wait, everybody didn't raise their hand. I don't know, this is kind of, I better rethink this. No, it's, uh, no, but a lot of this is about taking what we know implicitly and making it explicit so that we can bring craft and intentionality and purpose to this work. And that's why we talk about one-on-one -on -one meetings, house meetings, and so forth. Now, second, and I'm watching the clock here, I gotta pick up speed. Second story, narrative. Organizing requires learning to access emotional resources rooted in our values that can enable us to respond to challenges with courage, with hope, empathy, and self-efficacy, as opposed to reacting to them in fear, isolation, and self-doubt. This is the work of public narrative. The role of narrative is based on the fact that we come to know the world in two ways, with the head and with the heart. We map the world of what is cognitively, but we map the value we place on things, people, and experience emotionally. So it is through emotion that our values can inspire action. As St. Augustine observed, it's one thing to know the good. It is quite another to love it. Loving it is what enables action upon it. Knowledge is not sufficient to produce action. It's not that cognition is good and emotion is bad, but rather they are distinct. And you know, there's such a bias, certainly in the academy, against understanding emotion and how it works. That's, oh, emotion, you know? And there's a lot of power and gender and there's a lot of dynamics involved in that. But it's important to appreciate that emotion has its own language just as cognition has its own language. Pascal said, wrote that the heart has reason of which reason does not know. And one of the languages of emotion is narrative because narrative is one of the ways we've learned to access the emotion to deal with challenges with mindfulness. Most of the time we operate out of habit because it's very efficient. But when confronted by the unexpected, habit no longer works. So we experience these encounters as anxiety. And the anxiety calls our attention to the need for action. So at times, leadership may require that we awaken people to the challenges they face 
the work of urgency, the work of anger, not rage, but outrage, so as to create sufficient anxiety that people look at the circumstances with fresh eyes. Now, I know that sounds kind of crazy. My job as a leader is to make people anxious. Well, yeah, but the danger is that the anxiety turns into fear, in which case we run away, we strike out, or we freeze and hope whatever it is that's frightening us doesn't get us. Now, that may have been very, very helpful when we have to deal with saber-toothed tigers. But when we began to live with other people, culturally, we developed ways to learn to manage our hearts in order to confront challenges not with fear, but with hope. And that is the work of narrative, how to counter hope against fear, solidarity against isolation, self-worth against self-doubt. Stories are made from a plot, a character, and a moral. And what makes a plot a plot is a protagonist on his or her way to a goal when something happens, the unexpected. Um, the Khaleesi arrives with her dragon. Or, well, no, that's, that's, an in, in, that's a Harvard joke. No, it's not really. Something happens, something, something, and that's when we lean forward and we start paying attention. That's the, that's the moment we get interested. Up to that point, it's boring. And we pay attention because <clears throat> of our own encounters with the unexpected, our own, <clears throat> which we seem to be infinitely curious to learn how to handle. Small things like movies sold out of tickets, and then the big things, marriages break up, people get thrown out of school, we lose loved ones for whom we care about which we can do nothing. It is, in fact, one of the core dimensions of human experience to have to confront the unexpected, to have to deal with those challenges for which, by definition, we are not prepared. And because we can empathetically identify with the protagonist in a story, we are able not only to learn with our heads the moral, like haste makes waste, we actually experience we experience the fear, we experience the hope, and we experience the values, resources the protagonist draws on in order to find the courage to confront those challenges. So the experience of the protagonist becomes our experience. So the moral that a story teaches is less to the head than to the heart. And this is why, this is why faith traditions, cultural traditions, families all teach through stories. I mean, that's where you heard your first stories, right? From professional storytellers? Well, sort of, they're called parents, right? You're telling stories. 85% of the time, parents spend with young children in storytelling. It's instruction. It's instruction to the heart. Let me tell you about Uncle Charlie. You don't want to be like Uncle Charlie. You know, he, he started out right, but he took a wrong turn. So I'll tell you about Aunt Harriet. She's, come on, every family the world over has those stories. So we are all storytellers. Public narrative is about harnessing the power of story to the work of leadership by accessing it to be able to tell a story of self, that is, to communicate to others through my lived experience why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then a story of us, not a categorical us, like everybody with green hair, but an experiential us, the values that we share, the experiences that we share. And a story of now, how to turn this moment into a narrative moment, a moment of challenge, a moment in which we must choose, respond, and a moment of action. And for those of you that watched the Democratic Convention and um, saw Michelle Obama's talk, you see that? And contrast with Hillary's? 
and we showed in my class this year the, the six minutes of each, Michelle speaks through narrative moments, one after another after another. And because of that, we get the emotional meaning of that moment and of the person behind it. Hillary couldn't ever learn to do that. And so she remained opaque behind a screen. And when you're in public life, if you don't author your own story, others will author it for you. So you really have no choice but to claim your own story in public life. Does that make sense? Now, third, and I see I'm going to run just a few minutes over here. I hope. Is there a guy with a cane or, oh, oh, am I okay? Okay, all right, just want to be sure. Okay, third, <clears throat> organizing can't stop at the why. It also has to grapple with the how. How do we turn what we have, our resources, into what we need, power, to get what we want, our goals, our objectives, and change? And that's called strategy. That's called strategizing. Now, that means talking about power and taking power seriously. Dr. King described power as the ability to achieve purpose, and it's central to organizing, the capacity to turn resources into new realities. Now, how does power work? Well, everybody gets it, really. Uh, if you need my resources, if you need what I got more than I need what you got, who's got the power? You need what I have more than I need what you have, who's got the power? That's right. You reverse it, who's got the power? If I need what you got more than you need what I got, who's got the power? All right, so that's power. Power is influence correlated by interdependency. And sometimes when we have enough interests in common, we can collaborate in, a ways, in ways that enhance the power of both of us. We call that power with, like a cooperative, like a cooperative daycare, like a collaboration, a credit union. But sometimes our interests are in conflict. And when our interests are in conflict, then the question is, how can I make it in your interest to do what I need in order to realize my interests, okay? How can I make it more costly for you to resist change than to accept change? And that's power over. And that's a lot of where the issue in organizing is. Now, the people in Montgomery, Alabama, discovered that by using their feet in a different way, they could shift power over them into their power over the bus company, and it achieved change. The American colonists here in Boston, you know, they dumped some tea in the harbor. You know about that? It was a boycott of British goods, of British products to influence the British government and the merchants. Gandhi used salt. In the farm workers, we had a great boycott. The challenge is how to access resources that are more widely distributed, like time, in order to challenge resources that are more tightly held, like wealth. And this challenge of people and wealth is a critical challenge to appreciate and understand and understand how it works and how it can change. The reality is, and the reason I call my book Why David Sometimes Wins, is that while it is, it is probable Goliath will always win, sometimes David does. And it's winning achieved by compensating for resources you don't have with greater resourcefulness. 
with the creativity to learn the points of leverage and understand how you can enable your people to use their resources in ways to influence the interests of those whose cooperation and collaboration they need in order to get what they want. It often involves conflict, and conflict is often the midwife of change, something not to fear, something to recognize, something to embrace, and something to turn to constructive purpose, which is really what the whole democratic project is about, isn't it? The whole democratic project, the whole democratic project is about creating a system in which adversarial views can compete with one another and on the basis of equality, at least theoretically, uh, lead to public choice. That's what politics is supposed to be about. That's what the art of politics is supposed to be about. And that's what we have to reclaim if we're to begin to make changes in the structural conditions that we need to uh, deal with. Now, um, fourth st structure, oh, that ran out already. Uh, social movements are often born in reaction to structures they experience as oppressive. And so in that reaction, they may confuse all structure with being oppressive. But exclusive focus on trying to free oneself from the past can blind us to the need to organize ourselves to become free to create a better future. Freedom from to freedom to. And the reality is that traditional ways of structuring authority, often one person, often a male, giving everyone else orders have not really worked in many settings for a long, long time. On the other hand, rejection of the need for structure can easily result in what feminist scholar Joe Freeman called the tyranny of structurelessness. You know, you go to that meeting and, well, we don't believe in structure here. We don't have any leaders here. Uh, what Freeman points out is that anytime human beings get together, they will structure themselves. And it's either going to be on the books, visible, transparent, and accountable, or it's going to be off the books. Personalities, factions, and, and well, who's in charge here? Does that sound familiar at all? The point is to find the sweet spot between those two, which is what we've been working on the last several years, which is about the development of collaborative leadership teams that can cascade leadership outward in a distributed way. It's not a new thing. Moses' father-in-law Jethro in Exodus 18 tells him he's gonna burn himself out if he keeps trying to do it all himself and he's got to find the folks to delegate with and to uh, engage as well. So team-based leadership is uh, critical, I think, to structure. Finally, action. Um, changing the world requires mobilizing and deploying resources in new ways that enable us to learn from our failures as well as our successes. One measure of the impact of an organizing campaign can be evaluated by counting votes, people, events, policies, laws, Achieving real outcomes in turns requires the commitment of real resources, time, money, effort to the task in ways that can be counted. I was taught in organizing, if you can't count it, it didn't happen. But one challenge is to determine the right metrics, what it is to assess progress or lack of progress toward our goals, not only for purposes of accountability and recognition, but most of all for learning. If we don't know what we're doing, how can we learn to do it better? Learning to make change, in turn, is not a matter of following a blueprint, but rather discovering pathways to learning as we go. The process of changing the future is not anything anyone has a blueprint to. It's a pathway we have to discover. 
And we have to be smart about discovering that pathway by honestly assessing our failures, learning from them, and our successes as well. And because in organizing, commitment is the foundation of power because you're asking people to commit their time, it is a fundamental skill learning how to ask people for commitment. And let me just ask you right now, how many people in this room found it easy to ask other people to commit? Yeah, that's the truth. The reality is we gotta learn to do that. Because unless we are able to make claims on others, see, it's not like we're asking people to do us a favor. We're creating an opportunity for people to make a difference. But you can't make a difference without sacrifice. You can't make a difference without commitment. So sometimes we try to focus on making things so easy that we think that's what motivates people, when in reality what motivates people is making it valuable, is making that, that, that it will make a difference, that it will matter. And that's really where the work lies. We bring this work together by, in, in one way, by developing leadership as fundamental to learning these practices, diffusing these practices, and building and, and, and deepening their capacity within our communities and constituencies. We also bring it together temporarily in terms of time. Stephen Jay Gould wrote, there's two ways to think of time. Time is an arrow, time is a cycle. Time of a cycle is a rhythm of continuity. Time of arrow, as an arrow, is a rhythm of change. We recognize that in the way we organize a campaign as opposed to a program. A campaign in which we start without the resources we need so that we can build the resources we need in the course of getting there. It's not, let me wait till I get my grant, then I'll start. Uh-uh, you're gonna be waiting for a long time. I gotta start, I gotta build, then I develop the resources that I need in the course of building, and that's what campaigns do. Finally, conclusion, end. The success of an organizing campaign is thus evaluated not only in terms of whether it solved the immediate problem, but whether it did so in such a way as to empower a constituency with new economic, political, and cultural capacity, and at the same time, developing, developing the leadership that will enable it to grow, get to scale, and create the power to achieve the structural change that we need. One of the main reasons why organizing in the civil rights movement hooked me was it was about working with people to find the resources within themselves and each other to create the power to change the institutions around them responsible for their problems in the first place. And that's what democratic governance should enable us to do. So I'm just gonna conclude here with a song. I'm not gonna sing. In the fourth grade, they told me, would you please just mouth the words? And that was sort of the, yeah, I was a very mean teacher. That was sort of the end of the, uh, the, end of the uh, singing career. Uh, but this was a song uh, record, from the 1960s, recorded by Judy Collins, and it uses the word freedom, and I want to explain. The Civil Rights Movement never called itself the Civil Rights Movement. It called itself the Freedom Movement. Freedom is a much bigger word than legal rights. Freedom is about dignity, it's about community, it's about power, it's about the capacity to act and shape one's own future. So think of it in that sense. And the song goes like this. Freedom doesn't come like a bird on the wing doesn't fall down like the summer rain. Freedom, freedom is a hard one thing. You have to work for it, fight for it, day and night for it. And every generation has to win it again. Pass it on to your children, brother. Pass it on to your children, sister. They have to work for it. They have to fight for it, day and night for it. And every generation has to win it again.
Pass it on to your children. Pass it on. Thank you for the opportunity to pass some of it on. Thank you. Well, Marshall, if you had wanted to have sung that last song, we were willing to accompany you in some way. <laughs> but, um, well, so thank you so much. I believe that you just gave us a master class in community organizing, so that is deeply, deeply appreciated. And now what we want to do is to connect the community organizing lessons that you just provided us to the work that so many of us in this room are doing with collective impact. And what can we learn and uh, how can we continue to refine the work that we're all doing? Uh, my name is Melody Barnes and I'm the chair of the Aspen Forum for Community Solutions. And in a second, I'm going to introduce the other members of the panel who you've already not met this morning. But I just want to start out by talking just for two minutes uh, or less about collective impact. You know, there are certain words or phrases that you only have to say one word and it immediately tells you something about a person or a place or a thing. When we talk about Standing Rock, immediately it takes us to a place. You know, Marshall was just talking about the civil rights movement. When you say Birmingham or Selma, it immediately takes you to a place. You know what we're talking about. On the lighter side of things, when you say Beyonce, you immediately know who we're talking about. Um, collective impact, in many ways, since that article written in 2011, has taken on that kind of meaning. Um, and for better or for worse, um, people respond to the phrase collective impact. It certainly sparked a conversation about uh, a set of uh, elements that we all know to be important to inherent to collective impact. And it sparked that new conversation while at the same time, we know that it sits beside and it stands on the shoulders of community organizing and other kinds of collaborative practices. What we've also learned since 2011 that many people were already doing this work. Collective Impact in the article that John and Mark wrote really just provided a title to it and put, put that into a, a larger frame and disseminated that not only nationally but also internationally. But at the same time, we also know because of what's happening, because of what so many of you all were already doing in your communities, that collective impact had to continue to change and to evolve and to grow. That we started talking more, and very importantly, about issues like equity and community engagement and how that had to be a part of this larger frame of collective impact. And I think that if we're smart, we will continue to grow and to continue to bring all that we learn in our, com in our communities to this frame so that we can continue to refine it. But there's much to be learned. And I think that, as I said, because we stand on the shoulders, because we sit beside other kinds of collaborative work, we have to learn from the kind of conversation that Marshall just began describing for us. And so that's what we want to do in this morning's panel, to have that conversation um, so that we can go out into our communities, go back home, and bring the, that work to our, our initiatives there, but also come back together collectively and continue to see how we evolve and we grow. So in doing that, I've got a really wonderful group of people here with me. You've already been introduced to Marshall in such a wonderful way. 
Um, next to me, I'm not going to go into any great detail. You've got the information um, in your packets. But stand, sitting next to me, I have Shakima Fulmore Townsend, who is the CEO of the Philadelphia Youth Network, um, who has been doing that work in such a wonderful, deep way um, for many, many years. Um, sitting next to Shakima, we have Marjorie Parker, who's the Deputy Executive Director of Jobs First New York City. And then sitting, I'm sorry? Oh, oh, okay. I was like, <laughs> I was like, can I not read? <laughs> okay. Um, I put myself Thank in my own you, pathway. Steve. Yes. Congratulations <laughs> on that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and then sitting to her right, we have Mark Philippart um, from PolicyLink. Um, so I want you to join me in welcoming them to the stage. So thank you. So I want to start out just very generally and ask you all for your re response and reaction to Marshall's comments. I mean, because of the work that you do, and Mark, I'll start with you, because PolicyLink spends a lot of time working communities all over the country. Um, so you see the kind of collaborative work that's happening there. Um, you all try to work with those communities. Um, I know that equity and community engagement have been such a deep part of the work that you've done. So I'm curious about your reaction to what Marshall just shared with us. Yes, thank you. And uh, good morning, everyone. Happy to be here. Uh, thank you, Marshall, for your talk. I think uh, from my perspective, it was incredibly helpful to hear all of that laid out in a really powerful uh, way. PolicyLink has been working for nearly 20 years to advance equity, uh, and our work has, as Melody indicated, involved a, a really deep relationship with community and putting community at the forefront of the change that we hope to see. Uh, my work specifically at PolicyLink is focused on improving outcomes for boys and men of color. And in that capacity, uh, I do a number of different things, uh, many of which you'll uh, see in your uh, program packet. Uh, but the thing that I think most resonates with uh, Marshall's talk is really our leadership to support the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color, which is a network of grassroots leaders in California primarily um, that are focused on improving outcomes for that population. Uh, and through that work, um, I see all of these uh, uh, strategies that you've outlined come into, come into play. Uh, we're working with organizers, supporting them in a deep way to be able to uh, realize the vision of their constituents. Um, so, you know, that involves, uh, at least on our part, operating with a collective impact framework, yes, but um, that's really running in the background. That undergirds um, all, the, all of the, the work that we do, and it's a framework um, that they are probably not so familiar with um, because we don't necessarily trot it out in a very public way, but um, you know, it's everything that they're doing. Um, and so I, I think it, it definitely, your talk definitely resonates with me in that regard uh, because our communities who we're working with are, are really focused on building power in a way that um, addresses the issues that uh, are, are most important to their constituents. So Marjorie, I'm, I'm curious in particular because of the deep work that you've been doing in New York City, what your response is. Well, good morning, everyone. Morning. Well, my first reaction was that Kalisa did arrive with the dragon in the form of Marshall Gantz. Um, <laughs> What struck me was the, the portion around 
have movements that started by emotional connection. And that um, Jobstress NYC was born out of an emotional connection. We had a crisis in New York City 10 years ago with over 232,000 young adults who were out of work and out of school. Um, when the data got out and the communities um, saw that my community is on that list, people wanted to do something about that. And our local philanthropists had what we had was borough-based, borough-wide community convening with stakeholders across the five boroughs of New York City, try, you know, trying to make a decision about what should be done. And those rooms were as full as these rooms. Um, people wanted to get stuff done. What we've been doing is really enabling those communities over the last 10 years, um, keeping the emotion present, um, helping to enable them to organize, uh, tapping into where they think that they're empowered to begin to make the changes, and working with them um, throughout the process to getting to getting broader community and broader stakeholder commitment, um, keeping the passion alive. And so I'm very inspired by um, just this going back to talk about community organizing. The collective impact is built on that. I, I shared with Melody that when the collective impact frame um, well, became public in 2011, I was quite happy because it was almost I went back to grad school after I'd started working and started managing, and suddenly everything that I couldn't really name in, in the most professional way had a name. And so for me, Collective Impact framed um, many things that um, a lot of us have been doing and haven't named in a consistent way that a community can begin to identify within a frame and name those frames and what they're doing on those frames. So um, thank you for, thank for you. this one. Shakima. So first, I have to say, hello, everybody. It's so nice to be with 950 of my closest friends. So <laughs> welcome. It's nice to see you all. Um, you know, Marshall asked the question, who are my people? And the intersection of faith and the way in which you seamlessly sort of stood firm on your values through the way that you introduced us to the organizing work, I said, there's my people. <laughs> so this is really a refreshing to, to, to see that and to be in this space. I think there were a couple of things that struck me, um, but it's mostly this issue of conflict. Conflict is the midwife of change. And I thought, yes, I'm the person in the room. There's an elephant. I want to introduce myself to the elephant. I want to know why are you here, what's going on. And sometimes we tend to you know, avoid conflict. But at the Philadelphia Youth Network, we've been fortunate to be the backbone for Project U-Turn and really looking at the challenge of high school graduation in Philadelphia. And the conflict that was underlying that was really who's at fault for the future of our young people. And we made some really concrete decisions very early on about the power, the intersection of power and influence, the intersection of policy and practice, the intersection of practice and systems change. Um, we, we work in intersection, or like what I say to my staff, we work in attentions. If it feels too good, it is wrong. We need to do something different because we are in the space of alleviating tensions. And the tension that we had to address in our community was we were all responsible. And when we started this work, we were at a 52% graduation rate. 
and we weren't sure exactly why that was happening. And just as many kids were leaving school and continue to leave school, and we had to make a choice that this was not about blame, but it was about declaring the reality that we hope to see for young people. It was about looking into this space and seeing who they could be and recognizing our responsibility and creating an environment for that. And so when you think about power and the change of power, well, yeah, some other people had other things that we needed more than they did, but we held the future of young people as the greatest source of power. And that's promoted change over the last 10 years. And we've seen our graduation rate increase significantly to 66%. And we're gonna use that same strategy to push further into the conflict, push, push further as midwives of change and make that happen. Well, and Marshall, as you have heard more about collective impact, as you've heard the members of this panel describe some of their work, I'm curious when you think about the, the depth of the experiences you've had at thinking about community organizing, where do you see the, the challenges for us with collective impact, the places where we need to learn more from community organizing? What can we bring into the work that we do? I don't want to claim to expertise that I don't have. So I, I'm, I'm a bit reticent okay. because I haven't been within the collective impact world. But my sense is that there are problems um, that can be addressed by bringing community leaders together, mm -hmm. discovering where their common interests lie, and mobilizing resources on behalf of those problems and, and address them. But there are other problems in which there is a deep conflict of interest. Like, for example, wage rates. Mm -hmm. Deep conflict of interest. Now, when you have those conflicts of interest, then you have to address the, the, the question of power. And that often entails conflict and struggle. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But it's not the line of first action. Mm -hmm. But it's got to be there. And, 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 and it also, how can I put this? There are problems that can be solved locally, but there are many problems that can't. They have to be acted on locally, but they have to be acted on, but, but those actions have to add up to more. Mm -hmm. And that's where the art of politics comes in. Mm -hmm. The whole question of, of national purpose and local action, the combination. I, I think sometimes we get stuck in thinking, oh, it's all going to be done from D.C., and so we just mobilize some people. Well, that doesn't work. Then over here, we're just going to work at the local level. Well, we can get so far, but only so far, because a lot of these economic forces and political forces are powerfully translocal. Now, unless we use our politics to do that, and I don't mean just electoral politics, but I mean even restoring the role of government. Mm -hmm. I mean, for the last 30 years, government's been eviscerated. Right. State, local, national level, tax base gone. How do we solve these public problems without public resources in reality? So I think that we have to be conscious of the need to solve problems in such a way that they, that they create the basis for actually going deeper and broader into these kinds of structural challenges, which unless we address them, we're just going to continue going backwards. And uh, yeah. No, I was just going to say, it feels like you're talking about a both-and proposition in terms of both the, kind, the, the approach that we take, but also both-and national, state, and local. Yeah, yeah. And I think, 
sometimes distraction with the national stuff. See, it's kind of like sometimes um, heads with no bodies or bodies with no heads. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like um, it's all up here. We get focused on that and we forget unless it's locally grounded, we don't really have the power. I mean, that to me is one of the problems, certainly of progressive politics for the last at least 20 years has been substituting, mobilizing people who already agree with us as opposed to engaging with people who don't. That takes organizing. When you organize a union, you can't just go in and mobilize the people that are already for you. You've got to engage everybody, not to compromise with them, but to convert them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you don't do that through messaging. You do that through in relationship, through engagement, through organizing. And, and that's the stuff, I, that's where I think we need to go with this. And I want to come back to that point in a second because I think that's so important, particularly at this moment in time. But Mark, I also though want to ask you and, and Marjorie and Shakima as well, as you have been doing the work that you do, you know, and you all have a national vision, but you also do, do deep work in community and the work that you all do in community, where are the points of refinement that you all would identify. I mean, collective impact has continued to grow, has continued, we've iterated, but what would you put out there as this is a place where we really need to do some additional work to strengthen our movement? Yeah. And I'll, I'll start. Um, just reflecting on our experience uh, nationally and in California, I think if you're going to pursue racial equity, if you're focused on outcomes that uh, are, are going to move the needle in that arena, uh, you have to confront power. And in many instances, um, the implementation of collective impact often ignores that and actually places the decision-making power, authority, leadership uh, within the hands of those who are vested in maintaining the status quo. And so, what we have done within our work in California in particular um, with the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color is really put the power into the hands of grassroots leaders and community organizers who are actively working at this tension that uh, Shakima pointed out, who are actively working at the intersections, who are actively working uh, to resist, to build power in their communities and neighborhoods. And then we help them bridge their work to be able to magnify their impact at the state level. In California, we have you know, somewhere around 1,000 school districts. We have 58 counties. We have over 500 cities. Uh, and the scale of all of that really means that you know, working on a problem in Oakland or working on a problem in Fresno um, won't get you to the, 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 the aggregate level that you need to be at in order to affect real change. And as Marshall stated, you can only get so far in those neighborhoods and communities. And so we've often had to rely on a state policy strategy because our state is also one that is locally driven. And so given our limited resources, we've had to really aggregate up uh, whatever resources we have and whatever power we're able to build in communities to be able to affect state level change. And over the past six years, we've contributed to or supported nearly 80 legislative items that really improve outcomes for boys and men of color, their families and communities from cradle to career. So we're very proud of that, but I think it only comes because of a critical race analysis, a critical understanding 
of structural barriers. Um, you mentioned uh, the, the miners' canary. A lot of the work in the boys and men of color arena um, has really been grounded in Lonnie Guineer's yes. seminal work, yes. uh, which is also the miners' canary. Um, and, and so people have an understanding that, you know, boys and men of color, very vulnerable population, are often the first symptom of, you know, fragmented, disempowered uh, communities. Uh, you know, so, so using that analysis, using their uh, lived experience as really the, uh, the, the, the spear to which they can begin to, to act and to push for what they want, um, I think has been really successful for us. That's great. That's really great. I, yeah, that book by Lonnie and uh, everybody should read that. Yes. Uh, Lonnie Winier and Gerald Torres, The Miner's Canary. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it, it, that's exactly the source. <laughs> right, and probably one of the many reasons that Lonnie was so vilified. Oh, yeah. boy, no <laughs> yeah. no which, which is an understatement. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to go to Q&A in about four and a half minutes exactly. Um, but I want to go back to this point you were making about personal narrative and, the, and during your comments, your remarks, but also the point you were making a second ago. And I know when we were speaking earlier and Shakima, you were talking about the importance of personal narrative um, at the tables at which you've been sitting. But here's my question and why I think it's so important at this moment. Um, there are multiple narratives that people are articulating right now. Um, and there's a narrative that I believe many of us in this room would articulate about a progressive narrative, narrative an effort to claim and reclaim um, power and to move forward with a progressive agenda. And there is one that is 180 degrees um, diametrically opposed to that. And those narratives are not even related to one another. And they are certainly people who are articulating the other one don't hear this one, there is a completely different world in which they, they are living, in which they are receiving information. And I'm just curious, um, as that's happening, because of the great emotion that you described that's necessary for change, with which both of those narratives are being articulated, how do we address that problem as we are trying to articulate and drive our narrative, as we are trying to use that emotion to build change, to claim power, to move forward with a more a progressive agenda, and we're running into the brick wall of people who aren't even hearing our narrative and articulating their own with the same level or a, certainly a, a level of, of, of heat um, and anxiety um, that they perceive as being very real in their version of what the world that we live in right now. So you just saved up the easy questions, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we got, you know, I said, you know, oh, we'll go boy. to Q&A in four and a half no, minutes. No, I mean, I think... <laughs> No, I think it's important to recognize what you just described as a reality. And there, there is a struggle there. There's a fight there. But there, the, there are different ways to fight the fight. I mean, not by compromising what your values are, but by actually engaging with others in trying to find enough commonality of value that it can open up learning. I mean, that's what we do when we're organizing. And, like people against the union for the union, very tough thing. What you find, and it's interesting, this recent research on uh, deep uh, canvassing that's been done in the context of, uh, of uh, marriage equity, uh, marriage equality. Um, do you know the stuff I'm referring to? This, it's very interesting work uh, done by the gay community in 
targeting communities that disagreed with them and found that through interpersonal conversation, narrative-based conversation, it's not like all of a sudden the world changes, but there's a discovery of enough common ground there just in terms of fundamental lived experience of caring for children, uh, of caring for the future of one's children, of one's own security, the sense of dignity that we all deserve and need. But not theoretical discussion, a sharing of lived experience. You begin to create an opening, a possibility then, for then a, a deepening of understanding. And, and that kind of deep engagement, I don't think we've done that for years. Uh, and and it, because our bias is to do uh, messaging, uh, marketing, uh, you know, the latest DC consultocracy product, you know, and it's like, that's not where it's at. Uh, it's about this going into, talking to people, engaging with people. And I don't mean to make that sound simple. It's not, it's really tough. It's evangelical work, really. And uh, actually, I think that uh, the other side has been done much more evangelical work in that sense than we've been doing. And I think we need to do that because our values really matter. They really matter. I think, probably tying the, the question you had previously in this one, um, what our experiences taught us over the last 10 years, we're just entered our 10 year, our mission, right? Founded in this idea of leveraging resources um, across um, institutions and um, the private and the public sector and community to get to greater outcomes. What we've learned over the last 10 years is that we often think, and I, I think I told Melody that I occasionally have this random thought that we have overreached as a sector. Um, a community is not ready until it's ready. Um, we think that just because the conditions are on the ground and the symptoms are evident, that that community is ready for us to intervene. And this is why the work, you say change is slow, but then it happens quickly and we're in a fast moment now. Because that's what happens when you're on the ground organizing, when you're engaging stakeholders, when you're helping them to understand that you, you can do something. But if you've been in a community that has been under-resourced, underserved, um, oppressed, um, as many experience it, it's, you think people would want to jump on and say, there's a solution here. They have to find it. And what we've learned is that communities aren't ready. Um, we've had some challenges in some communities that we've entered um, because we've been invited in. But when we got there, the folks that invite you in aren't the ones that the community responds to. They largely see them as folks who use the community um, for their own um, purposes. So you have to ensure people, so if you, win, you want to change minds, you want to get people on the same page, but they're not ready until they're ready. And this is where change takes a long time. And so in this political environment, um, simply you see the differences when you watch TV, for example. Um, I have that in my own family. You should hear the shouting that happens when we get together for Thanksgiving. And so it's, it's, you have to understand that you only get there when you get there, when you understand that you need to make that change and that you have those things in common, you're not so different. And that's what in this um, collective impact and community organizing framework that we always have to be aware of, that the conditions that dictate the symptoms doesn't mean that the community is ready for our intervention.
right? Yeah, so let's do that. And I think that you said a good point about being invited. There's yes. no substitute for authentic engagement. And so at the end of the day, we all find it easy to sit around the room with our friends and you know conspire and, and congratulate each other. But uh, at PYN and, and through Project U-Turn, I have learned that some of my best strategies come from what I call the BFF method. So it's the person that's rubbing up against me the hardest. It's the, it's the person who is really challenging my patience and at sometimes my Christianity and all of those things as a leader. And I have had to develop the discipline to one, do some self-reflection, like why is this bringing up this emotion in me? Um, who am I seeing before me? What lived experience am I reliving through your oppression or communication style or all of those things, right? And so it starts with me being really clear about what's driving me and then making a choice, choosing to be responsible as a leader and choosing to BFF that person, to find the space of connection, to find the space of friendship, to understand more, to be courageous enough, bold enough, crazy enough some days, to ask questions about the thing that is challenging me the most, and the vulnerability that comes with that, seeking counsel, being honest with my team and saying, I'm actually not ready to engage with that person because Shakima, or as I joke, I say Brooklyn Shakima, she's at the elevator and sometimes President and CEO Shakima and Brooklyn Shakima don't agree on what to do next. <laughs> and I need, you know, and that's just real human leadership, right? And I need that reflection, self-reflection, but also the honesty and the space of, of authenticity for folks to pour into me and say, actually, if Brooklyn Shakima goes, you sacrifice everything that we just got. And is it worth those things? And to challenge myself to find the space of connection, to understand what's motivating them, and to find, to see the opportunity. The obstacle is always clear. The opportunity is often hidden behind emotion, behind motivation, behind your experiences. And it is the responsibility, I think, in the work of collective impact and common language and shared metrics and shared goals for us to really be honest about that and to really do that work and to simplify the language so that we can get to the core of the issue. And I think it's, it's going to, this political climate is going to require a little bit of BFFing. If you, you know, to understand a little bit better, some of my best strategy has come from really understanding, oh, that's what's motivating you. How can I maximize that to achieve this other goal? And so that, that takes, that's the skill, that's part skill and part art. Right, and that, and, and a whole lot of discipline yeah. to do that. I want you all to join me in thanking what I think has just been an extraordinary panel. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what was discussed in this talk, we've included information in the footnotes for this episode including a link to a transcript of Marshall Gantz's keynote. The intro music for this episode was composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. Please stay tuned for our next episode, and if you're looking for more resources, discussions, and news related to Collective Impact, please visit our online community at collectiveimpactforum.org. And for those interested in joining us for our next in-person learning event, Registration is open for our 2020 Collective Impact Convening, 
That will be in Minneapolis this May 6th through 8th, 2020. Thanks for listening, and until next time.